Um, hello everybody uh, and Kia Ora. Um, in today's session, uh, we will detail the potential use of road-grade recycled plastics in asphalt pavements and the selection of the most suitable types um, of recycled plastics for incorporation into asphalt. We have more than 300 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Communications Officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with the Project Manager and one of the presenters, Andrew Papakostas. Um, Andrew, we will hear from Andrew at the start of the presentation, and he will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Program, which is managed by Ross Gapi. So a bit of housekeeping, our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session at the end of the webinar. The reports and the slides uh, today's presentation is based on can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. There's a question section there. Please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any stage during the webinar. If your question relates to any particular slide, uh, please include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best um, as we can. You can also use that same questions box to let us know if you have any technical problems, but a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session by your email registration usually helps. Um, this session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. And if you listen to podcasts, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today. Our first presenter is Andrew Papakostas, and he will take us through the project background. Um, Andrew is the Principal Engineer, Pavements, Geotech and Materials within the Department of Transport Victoria. He has 35 years of experience as a civil engineer um, in the road building and maintenance industry, and 30 years of which have been specializing in um, road pavement technology, including pavement design, rehabilitation, maintenance, uh, materials testing, and the preparation of design guides, specifications, and standards. Andrew is a current member of the Austroads Pavement Task Force. Then we will hear from Associate Professor Filippo Giustozzi, who is an expert in road and airport pavement materials. Filippo completed his second PhD at Virginia Tech University and is the chair of the Technical Committee um, on Sustainable and Resilient Pavements at the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences and Engineering in the USA. At RMIT University, uh, Filippo is leading the Intelligent Materials for Road and Airport Pavements Research Group and is managing the only university-based um, fully equipped asphalt and bitumen laboratory in Australia. So Filippo will talk about the National Recycled Plastics Survey and Recycled um, Plastics Characterization. 
For the Q&A, we will be joined uh, by Dr. Marie Anfran and um, Yonjie Boom. They're significantly involved in this work and you will hear their presentations in the second webinar on Thursday this week, so make sure you're registered. So welcome Andrew and Filippo and uh, it is over to you, Andrew. And hello everyone. There's considerable interest in the use of recycled plastic in, in asphalt applications, both, both as a, a modifier of a bitumen or as a, an alternative aggregate source. However, there's a lack of uh, national guidance in the appropriate types of recycled plastic that could be used in those applications. And there's a lack of specifications to support their use. In, in addition, um, there's been concerns raised about the potential release of microplastics arising from the use of plastic, uh, asphalt containing plastic, both through the wear and tear that would go down the road and also for its removal. There's concerns about the possible fuming and emissions that arise through the production of that asphalt and, and, um, and placement. And there's also concerns about the future recyclability of asphalt that contains recycled plastic. And to that end, the Transport and Infrastructure Council, uh, which consists of ministers, transport and infrastructure ministers from across the Commonwealth, Australian states and New Zealand, have funded Ausroads to undertake a research project investigating the use of recycled plastic in, in Asheville. And hence, that leads us to today's project. This project was and uh, intended to investigate uh, the potential uses of recycled plastic in Asheville, but also address those issues I mentioned earlier and provide guidance to the wider industry. Now, the project team consists of an advisory board, and the advisory board has members from various state road agencies from New Zealand, uh, local government and industry, and they provide project oversight and direction. The Ostroads Pavement Task Force, which has members across Australia, New Zealand, local government and industry provides technical uh, advice, review and support to the project. And of course, the, the research has been undertaken by the RMIT University team led by, led by Filippo. Now, the project's been underway for over a year and has produced already two comprehensive reports. The first report, which was published around uh, March, April, um, dealt with uh, an overview of the recycling industry and looked at the potential plastic sources available to us, quantities, cost, uses, and also delved into the desirable characteristics of recycled plastic when used as a bitumen modifier or as a replacement to aggregate. The second report, which was published around uh, last month, November, delved into the uh, detailed characterization of those recycled plastics, but also presented frameworks for the assessment of uh, microplastic emissions, um, uh, also fuming, uh, and also the, the performance characteristics of asphalt containing recycled plastic. And on that note, I'll now hand over to, to Philippo to delve into the, the findings of the, the first published report. Thank you, Philippo. Thank you, Andrew. Um, I'm just sharing my screen right now. Okay, thanks Andrew for the introduction. Um, the project has been running for over a year now, as you said, uh, but on today's and on Thursday's webinars, you will assist that what was investigated uh, in the first six to seven months, basically, uh, from the project commencement. 
Um, as a matter of fact, we are going to submit one of the most comprehensive project reports next week, and that will go uh, through a round of review through all the state DOTs and, and advisory board members, and probably that will be presented at some point um, next year to the public. So let me start by saying that um, this is a bit of an unusual road research project, and the reason for that is that um, it's more like a bit of a discovery type of project in a way, because many aspects of it are um, actually associated to um, environmental aspects <clears throat> more than uh, uh, road engineering per se. So there is a, there is a, a strong environmental component, I would say. Um, what I would like to start presenting you with is um, an industry survey that we have conducted at the very beginning of the project. It was um, November, December um, last year. Um, we, Because of the novelty uh, for Australia and New Zealand, um, we started by mapping out, um, conducting one by one. Uh, well, it was some of them were face-to-face, -face, some of them were um, virtual um, interviews. But these interviews went on for almost two months. And we presented our ideas to the plastic industry. Uh, we listened to their comments and feedback. Um, probably overall, we engaged with approximately 40 different um, organizations widespread across Australia and New Zealand. You can see from the from the maps on, um, on the slides up on now, uh, the majority of them, there was a greater concentration from Victoria and New South Wales, but that only has to do with the fact that there is a greater concentration of organization dealing with recycled plastics in those two um, states. Um, probably Victoria recycles approximately 40% of the entire um, volume of plastics that is currently being recycled in Australia, and New South Wales pretty much 25%. So between the two of them, that's uh, almost two-thirds of the entire um, total of the total and volume of plastics in Australia. And for what relates to New Zealand, you can see that there is um, an obvious shift towards the North Island compared to the South Island. Also, um, some of the organization interviewed in Victoria and New South Wales, they, they do have several branches in other states, so we didn't uh, double count them, uh, we just count them as one for the sake of this map. Um, out of the 40 plus organization we have been dealing with during the interview process, some of them were plastic recyclers, um, some of them were, so basically end product producers, um, smaller volumes, but uh, targeted application, I would say. Um, some of them were from material recovery facilities, uh, so MRF, um, in this case, very large volumes, mainly um, separation into bales, reselling. Um, some others were plastic associations, product stewardship associations, um, so more focus on policy development, um, talking to industry representatives, and so on and so forth. So it has been a long interviewing process, but we wanted to make sure that as many people as possible um, were listened to. Um, during the interviews, we asked uh, a series of questions about the company they represented, but we also presented them uh, with our intentions for developing this project. Many of them provided uh, quite a, a number of feedback and also insights about the plastic recycling industry, which is, is not as simple as you may think. Um, specifically, we collected all sorts of information from the types of plastics that is reprocessed or recycled at that specific company, um, the production capacity, the recycling rate, uh, where were they getting the plastic from, 
um, the annual volumes, the, their operational volumes, the price they are buying the, the, the plastic at and they are reselling the plastic for. So some of them were just uh, um, collecting and reselling, some of them were buying from others and, and reprocessing and further reselling it for a higher price um, further downstream. So we will talk about all of this. And also we looked at the, the facilities that they have um, in terms of recycling technology, um, but also quality control and quality assurance processes that are implemented uh, at that specific plant. So the final idea was to really understand the plastic recycling situation and use this information to narrow down the large list of available plastics across Australia and New Zealand and tackle specific problematic plastics in our project. Um, the, as, an, as a first outcome, um, depending on who we talked to, whether it was a, a plastic recyclers, so uh, a small to medium enterprises or, or a MRF, well, it was evident, I think, um, that they identified, both of them, um, identified some types of plastics as being more problematic than other. As I said, depending on who we were talking to, uh, probably um, some of them were identifying commingled plastics from post-consumer stream as the most problematic to deal with, mostly related to the MRFs, uh, for instance. Um, this is both in terms of separation uh, at the facility, um, the real need for separation due to the lack of uh, the, the end market products um, and, and very large volumes to deal with. Um, some other players, um, probably a little bit smaller, but, but still uh, quite large in a sense, um, they were shifting the conversation toward um, other types of plastics, more post-industrial type of plastics. So plastic coming from um, the, the, the plastic manufacturing world, basically. Um, and, and you can think that this is currently recycled at a very high rate, but in reality, we are only recycling eight to 20% of this post-industrial plastic. So there is still uh, a long way to go uh, to increase this further to 80, 90 plus percent of recycled plastics. Um, among the different types of advantages, they were listed, you can see them uh, listed there at the bottom of the slide. Um, more quality control, there was um, less variability, and also the possibility to source um, um, single source uh, polymers. Um, Post-consumer streams, they are usually more contaminated, there are foreign materials in them, um, more uh, difficult to be recycled, but at the same time, there is a, quite a large volume of it, so we need to do something and, and talk about these sorts of plastics as well. Um, um, both of them, MRFs or, or other players, they suggested that there is a strong need to uh, recycle a polyethylene low density, especially in films form. Uh, basically, polyethylene accounts for approximately 50% of the entire plastic generated in Australia. So it's, it's a good stream to tap on um, for, for this project. Um, However, they all agreed, and that was kind of an important finding, that some sources of plastics like clear PT, clear HDP, they are currently recycled and the, the, uh, the demand for this type of polymers is quite strong. So it's probably, there, there is already an appetite in the market and most of the uh, MRFs, for instance, just separate PT and HDP and they sell the rest as other plastics. Um, so quite, quite an interesting overview of the market. Just to summarize, the companies we interviewed were dealing with these types of polymers. You can see 
in the slide right now. I call them polymers because waste plastic is still plastic, so and therefore it, it is a polymer. Um, obviously, some companies uh, recycle more than one type of plastics, but the interesting thing was that um, there is a local approach to the market, I think. So some recyclers directly sourcing from a specific plastic company uh, that usually is located in the near proximity of where they are at. Um, there were also examples of companies traveling interstate uh, to buy plastics and resell it after um, uh, a, a small reprocessing uh, for a profit. Um, so it would be interesting to see how this latter approach will play out in a, in a probably more uh, life cycle assessment uh, type of things where, where you, you, you actually input some energy into the system to go and travel interstate to get the plastics to your plant. But overall, LDPE, low-density polyethylene, polypropylene were the two most popular plastics with the majority of companies um, recycling them. Again, the companies we interviewed, but it's quite a representation of the um, national um, situation. Um, PET and HDPE were the most recycled in terms of volumes. Um, we also asked them to describe their plant in terms of facilities that they have available, machineries, um, all the different processes that company was participating to uh, from the collection of waste plastics up to the, the final pelletization, pulverization. And it was interesting to note to me that um, not many companies actually have the, uh, the facilities to, to look at the entire um, life cycle or the entire uh, series of processes that we can find in this slide. Uh, most of them, they just intervene in a few of these steps and they further send the product downstream for others to continue working on it. So that, that was quite interesting, but I will spend a few words in a second about this. Um, just as an example, there are some of the, these are some of the many forms of um, plastics. Um, one can find recycled plastics during the processing process. Um, from the general waste up on the top left corner, um, right after collection, um, the bales, after sorting, um, flakes, pellet, powder, mostly after reprocessing, depending on the on the um, detail of processing you're looking at. Um, by analyzing the answers from the industry, this was the overall picture that came up. So you basically have 81% uh, of the companies interviewed that have the possibilities of run their own collection. However, 77% they just relied on drop-off centers and direct, direct collection from the industry partners. 23% and those were uh, mostly MERFs, they do have and they do operate their own curbside collection scheme or program. If you look at the sorting part, well, 53% of the companies interviewed, uh, they were able to run their own sorting. However, only 64% of them um, they have access to, well, 64% of them um, have access to basic sorting facilities, whether it's a hand picking type of scenario or a simple ballistic separator, whereas 36%, they also have access to advanced, more advanced uh, technology like near infrared separators, so on and so forth. So it depends 
on the size, on the type of the business of the company. Um, the majority of the small scale players, they do not even employ sorting, for instance. They just directly buy single source polymer from post-industrial plastic and they reprocess it and they resell it as a pellet or as um, in other forms for, for a profit. So it is a bit more complicated than what it looks like because there are many underlying businesses, levels and, and opportunities in the market. Um, 80, uh, out of the 69% of companies able to do decontamination, 83% was having access to basic washing facilities. So just a, a simple washing line for rinsing and some merging plastics with some sort of agitation, mechanical agitation to remove foreign substances but only 17% uh, had access to advanced, like a vacuum type of uh, washing facility. And, and most of these were producing food grade type of plastics. 56% uh, had access to shredding and 63% to extrusion and pelletization. In terms of where they are located, well, uh, most of the large scale facilities on the top left hand side of the slide um, are more common in larger capital cities, of both countries, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, there are multiple large-scale companies in Victoria, New South Wales, uh, South Australia, um, the North Island of uh, New Zealand and the proximity of Auckland. Um, but overall, Tasmania, Queensland, Western Australia probably have less than four or five large-scale facilities um, collectively, so between all of them. Medium scale facilities, you can see that they're a bit more widespread around the country. And small scale facilities, they are pretty much everywhere. We consider small with a capacity of between zero and 10,000 tons per year, medium between 10,000 and 20,000, and large above 20,000 tons of production per year. Now, when you start separating in, in terms of who does what, it makes sense that small and medium companies, they focus more on the um, post-industrial plastics. Um, it's, it's more accessible, it's easier to acquire directly from some industry partner that they may have uh, in their close proximity. Um, there is lesser technological processing requirements. Um, you can get a, um, quickly an end product in comparison with all the processing that is required for post-consumer plastics. So it makes sense that when you look at the small-scale facilities and medium-scale facilities, most of them they deal with post-industrial. However, when you go to the large-scale facilities, most of these are MRFs, so they, they um, uh, look at the post-consumer um, as a first um, uh, source of or as a first stream of plastics. Um, obviously. Um, there are also large companies um, that are not MRFs um, with production rates of 70,000 plus tons per year. The, I, I can think uh, um, of one here in Victoria, for instance, and they have a focus on both post-industrial and post-consumer. So they have the capability of dealing with both, uh, but there, there are others. Now, um, we also wanted to have a look at the variability in terms of the price. Um, nationally across Australia and New Zealand. Um, the great variability of prices that you're going to see in just a second is mostly due to the fact that you can buy plastics in different forms and shapes. So depending on what level of that cycle that I showed you before in the previous slides you are at, you can buy it for a cheap plastic, or you, you can buy it for a cheaper price if you get it in a bailed form, or obviously you're gonna pay much more if you want the powder that is food grade or the pellet that are food grade at the other side of the spectrum. So we, we looked at the 
um, different prices. You will have a big range in there. Um, as I said, depends on um, the, the, the type of product you're getting and the shape of it and how many um, um, processes that product has undergone. Uh, but the average price is the one listed there. Um, these were prices as of December 2020, so they may be a bit different now, depending on fluctuation and, and transport and different things. Um, but um, we compared that um, with the price of a ton of aggregates, 15, 25, $30 per kilo, uh, because in some cases we are reusing it as a, as a replacement of the aggregates, but also with the price of a standard polymer commonly used for roads, which is quite higher. Um, between $3.5 per kilo all the way to five plus, I would say five plus. And recently, the cost of polymers for uh, producing polymer modified bitumen has increased quite a bit. So at the end of this process, we narrowed down the list um, for each of the two streams, whether it was post-industrial or post-consumer. For the post-industrial plastic stream, we looked in particular at low density, linear low density, polypropylene, um, ABS, HDPE, coming from a whole bunch of different um, applications, whether it was packaging wraps for from agricultural um, operations, um, industrial packaging wraps, uh, whether it was a polypropylene bags, um, car bumpers, uh, piping, chemical drums, all of them um, for what related to the post-industrial plastic stream um, or fishing. The fishing industry is also quite a contributor in terms of the um, uh, waste plastics being produced in Australia. Or for the other stream, the post-consumer stream, we narrowed down the list to uh, commingled polyethylene polypropylene, um, which is probably the majority of the commingled plastics out there, commingled polyethylene only, polypropylene, uh, colored PET and colored HDP. So basically anything from the plastic bags, um, food wraps, cling wraps, bottle caps, um, mixed drinking bottles with different colors, which are not easy to recycle. Well, not they are easy to recycle, but they're not easy to resell. Um, milk bottles of different colors. So um, after this extensive consultation in the industry, we were able to narrow down the list of plastics depending on their current availability, the future availability, the price they were selling at, uh, recycling opportunities, so what could be implemented to recycle more, uh, facilities available around the country. Some sources were eliminated for various reasons. Uh, you won't find any PVC in there. Um, not many people are recycling PVC. Um, in addition to the uh, emissions at high temperature, the presence of uh, different chemicals such as phthalates and, and different things. Um, but what is important is that we did um, we, we supplied overall um, 31 different types of recycled plastics at, at our MIT University for further experimental testing. And keep in mind that this is a very large number and it, it is overall in line with what a national project should deliver. But for each type of plastic, several suppliers were asked to provide samples in order to also test the variability. Of, of each and every single type of plastic. So if you are interested and you want to find all the details information, just feel free to look at report number one. It is available online at that link for free. <clears throat> so as I said, we supplied an unprecedented number of plastics to do tests on. And if you remember, I said 31. 
16 of them were coming from post-consumer operations, whereas 15 of them were coming from post-industrial. So 16 plus 15 is equal to 31. However, that's not the end of it, because obviously we, we needed to compare um, those recycled plastics with something. So we also supplied seven different types of virgin plastics, and, and you can clearly see how different they look one from the other. So overall, we ended up with 38 sources that were finally tested. <clears throat> Sorry, in reality, we tested a bit more than 40, probably, but a couple of sources was, um, were, were um, a bit too specific, like um, they, they were coming from a very particular source, and therefore we decided not to include them into um, the national scheme, the national project. So just uh, as a reminder, at this point of the presentation, if you have any questions, just uh, click on the small balloon with a question mark in it, and um, just uh, type in the slide number and your question. Thank you. Um, also, just to make sure we are all on the same page, for this national project, we used, we considered three different methods to incorporate plastics into bitumen and asphalt. Um, usually, most of the people I've been talking to over the past year, they just separated into two methods, either wet or dry. So we looked at the dry, uh, the wet method first. That's uh, basically when you modify, when you use plastics to modify the bitumen to, to come up with what we call plastic modified bitumen, and then mix it with standard aggregates in order to have plastic modified asphalt at the end. What you're using is a low melting point plastic. So plastic that is going to melt at the common production temperature or mixing temperature of the bitumen. However, when it comes to the dry method, so the incorporation of plastics into asphalt, um, we separated into two different methodologies. And that's probably a key aspect that is almost, uh, almost always or commonly overlooked. Um, the dry methods is where you have plastics as an aggregate replacement. And I'm talking about aggregate replacement because you are selecting high melting point plastics. So plastic that doesn't melt at the mixing temperature of the asphalt, plastics like PET with a melting point of 260, 265, for instance, or even amorphous plastic, so plastic that doesn't even have uh, um, a clear melting point. Um, on the other hand, you can use the same method for incorporation to produce what we call a mixed method. So you just add in plastics into the aggregates, but at this point in time, the plastic is a low melting point plastic. So when it comes into contact, with uh, the hot aggregates around 170, 175, 180 degrees Celsius, because the lower melting point, uh, because of the lower melting point, these plastics will tend to melt, and therefore will start coating the aggregates in a way, and that's where you add the standard bitumen at point number three. So there is a, a differentiation that I wanted to um, to make clear before we start talking about all the different plastics and processes. Um, one thing is. Okay, we brought in 38 sources between virgin and recycle. Um, and now it, it was when the fun part began because as you can imagine, testing has required a bit of time. If, if you're thinking about 38 sources of plastics multiplied by many tests and many replicates, we ended up with testing probably a, a thousand different combinations and, and, and properties. So um, this part of the project was focused on understanding what is available out there what type of plastic is available there, and what are the properties that can be found in recycled plastics that are different from the virgin counterparts on the left-hand side. So up until now, the approach has always been to find a local recycler 
Okay, I found a local recycler. I partner with them. I, I'm, I create some sort of business arrangement or a small agreement. And then I include their particular product into the asphalt mix. But obviously, if you're thinking about scaling these up nationally, uh, this entails um, that we have a full understanding of what is available and what performance can deliver. So we thought, okay, uh, the composition may be different. Recycled plastics may have fillers, they may have added chemicals during the recycling process, UV agents, stabilizer, etc. Um, different contamination levels, um, the shape can be different, the thermomechanical properties can be different, the chemical properties can be different. So we decided to test them all. So just keep in mind that the intention was um, to do all the homework ourselves. Um, in an effort or so that a greater national market for plastics in roads could be created rather than um, relying on local agreements between a contractor and a particular recycler. Obviously, um, there are a lot of plastics to be tested and a lot of different properties. So we came up with the idea of creating a multi-criteria analysis that incorporated all the important features um, we deem important. So as you can find here in the slides, you can read there are eight different criteria that we have been using for characterizing all the 38 types of plastics. So it's already 38 multiplied by eight, multiplied by at least three replicates each, and you will get, in, uh, you will get close to 1,000 in terms of test, and that, that's pretty much the figure I was talking to you before. For each and every single one of them, there is a test that has been associated to it. I'm not going to um, talk too much about the test now in these slides because I will go through um, each and every single one of them um, in the following slides. Uh, but as you can see, we looked at blendability, purity, uh, solubility, polarity, contaminations with organics, presence of some noxious substances, so on and so forth. So let's start with number one. Number one was the blendability. And the idea of this test was to answer the question, what temperature is the plastic melting at? And that's quite important because depending on the methodology that I showed you before, uh, you may need to know whether it's a low melting point, medium melting point, high melting point plastics, um, so that you can surely use it into one or the other method. So um, the differential scanning calorimeter is not an impossible method. It's not something that we came up with. It, there is a standard for it and a lot of different laboratories have access to it. But if you look at the graph on the uh, top left corner, there are two lines, a blue line and a red line. So just focus on the blue one for a second, and that's the DSA, which basically measures the, the phase transition in a material. So when it melts, for instance, where it crystallizes, um, you can see in the blue one that that was a, a virgin linear low density polyethylene with a clear melting point of 126. If you look at the recycled counterpart or one of the recycled plastics we have tested, you can see that there are three peaks in there. Um, one was attributed to the low density part of the plastic, another one to the linear low density, and then there was a peak around 163 for the polypropylene. So this actually, this method was actually able to distinguish between different sources of plastics embedded into the same uh, pellets, for instance, or into the same um, bunch of flakes that were delivered to us. And what was interesting to find out was that there was a bit of a discrepancy between what was the declared composition and what was the actual chemical composition of the plastic. So in the first column, you will see um, 26 different sources of plastics. 
Um, these are the ones that are related to the wet method, but there is another table for the dry method as well. You can find it into the report. Um, uh, this brings me to uh, back to the, the questions during the interview process. And if you remember, one of the questions were, do you implement some sort of quality controls or do you regularly test your products? Uh, most of the times the answers was no. Although I need to be fair, uh, there is a small number of recyclers that they have uh, their own lab and it's also quite an advanced and very good lab. Uh, however, this was not common across Australia and New Zealand. Um, the first column is about the different type of plastics. Obviously, we, we have um, chosen to put a code rather than the real name of the supplier. Um, the declared composition, if you look at row number one, was a, a low density polyethylene 100%, but actually we found that only 68% of it was low density and 32 was a linear low density. And that is pretty much constant. We were not really able to find uh, any source of recycled plastics that was either 100% low density or 100% linear low density. There were different proportions, but it was still a combination. So we grouped them all together into what we call LDP slash LLDP. Um, you can keep going down and you will find for PP, uh, some of them were PP 100%, but if you look on the other side on the green column, you will see that 82 was PP, 18 was some other form of polyethylene. However, we decided to classify them as PP-based. Same for HDPE, but the, probably the most interesting part is the one at the bottom where you have commingled plastics, mostly coming from post-consumer uh, post strains. So they were declared as commingled plastics, like, look, it's, it's so variable, we don't really know what it, what it is and what's inside it at any uh, specific stage. So we had a look at it and you can find the combination of linear low density, polypropylene, uh, low density, but also PT parts. So if you use some of this, there was one like the, the second last row, which has a 10% PET. So if you use this sort of plastics, for instance, as in the wet process, then you will not be able to, uh, um, to melt that 10% because the PET melts at 260. So that will stay in there, probably acting as a filler, but definitely not as a polymer modifier. Uh, the second properties we looked at, we called it purity. And the question we are trying to answer here is, what is the difference between the virgin and the recycled plastics in terms of their composition? Now imagine putting a piece of plastic um, on top of a very, very precise scale and start raising the temperature of the small environment where this scale is included in, um, up to 800, 900 degrees. So what is going to happen? What is it going to happen? Well, part of the material will start to evaporate. So the weight on the scale will change and it will reduce. And what we are measuring here is actually the, the mass loss. So what you find in the Y scale is the weight loss in, in percentage. And if you look at the differences between a virgin material in the black, uh, represented by a black line, to a recycled material at specific temperatures, you may have an understanding of what organic additives are in there, if there are any contaminants, if there are any inorganic additives present. So if you just run the ratio between the two curves, basically, or you can find the index that we classified on the right-hand side as P or purity. Um, obviously, we want the purity to be as high as possible or as close as possible to a virgin counterpart um, in order to uh, limit the variability. But obviously, this is not always possible, and I will show you some results. But all the detailed results for the uh, 31 recycled plastics can be found into the report. We looked at the density. Uh, too much of a difference in density will probably contribute uh, a bit to physical separation during storing of 
um, uh, plastic modified bitumen, for instance. So we looked at different uh, solutions, um, chemical solutions um, with different densities and, and put some bits and pieces of all the different types of plastics trying to identify what was the specific density. It's quite a, a simple uh, method for you. And the more you get closer to the bitumen density between 102 and 106, the, the better it is. Now, some of you may say, well, we already know what the density is of polyethylene, low density, high density. Well, keep in mind that this is a recycled product. So the, the difference between the virgin and the recycle is quite large. Uh, most of the time you have fillers and a fillers has a density that is probably similar to the, the density of an aggregate. So 2.6, 2.7. And that will increase the density of the entire plastic in it, depending on the concentration of the fillers in the single pellets or in the pellets. So that's quite important to understand. We also looked at the bit of chemistry, how compatible the polymer, recycled plastic polymer is with the bitumen itself. And uh, we use what we call um, solubility parameters or Hansen 3D parameters, basically uh, by looking at, uh, again, all the details are in the report, if you wanna have a, a clear understanding of what the Hansen 3D space are. But just for the layman, it's a way of predicting if a material will dissolve in another to form and form a solution. So it's based on the principle that like dissolves likes. Um, so if you have two similar material, they will probably get along with each other. And um, the, the way of calculating it is through the RED value at the bottom, which just takes into account the differences in the radius or the distance between those two spheres, one representing the bitumen and the other one representing the polymer. As you can see for HDPE, the RED value was close to 0.6. So the closer you are to zero, the perfect overlap exists. Uh, if you are um, closer to one or above one, then the two spheres are separated from each other and there is no solubility. So HDPE is, is quite far away. Uh, PP was uh, having a 0.35 RED, so there is a substantial overlap. LDP is 0.3, so even closer. And the EVA, which is the polymer commonly used by the road industry, has a RED of 0.13. You can use this sort of parameters for really everything, whether it's the, um, the sugar, the solubility of the sugar in your coffee, um, cholesterol and blood, uh, skin and, and cosmetics. Um, I don't know, uh, water and oil. If you think about water and oil, they have uh, an RED value of 3.4. So the two spheres are quite far away from each other. Um, MFI, super simple test, melting flow index. Not, not much science behind it, but it's still helpful to quickly characterize the consistency of the plastics between various batches at different times, for instance, or to look at the viscosity at high temperature as an indicator for processability, for instance. So low MFI um, can make the thorough dispersal within the bitumen a bit problematic. And that's why we commonly tend to have to, to prefer high MFI values. So it means a low viscosity at high temperature and better processability. Again, it's a bit of an empirical value, but it's still something quick and useful. And a lot of people have access to this sort of simple equipment. Uh, polarity, um, commonly, Anything that interacts with the bitumen, if it's polar, that create a better interaction. So we measured the polarity of the plastics through the a standard water contact angle. Uh, pl um, plastic is commonly non-polar, and, and that's quite a fact. But the, the interesting part was that um, we looked at uh, 
the fact that with aging, with the recycling process, the polarity of the plastic was slightly increasing. So the more you treat plastics with, with heat and through the recycling process, the, the more aging that is provided to the plastics, the more polar it becomes. Organic contamination, we wanted to verify whether, especially from some post-consumers um, type of plastics, whether there was presence of paper, timber, soil, anything that can represent an organic contamination. So you can see the two, the differences between the two curves. One is the virgin, where you clearly have uh, peaks identifying uh, the molecular compounds of a virgin plastic LDP and the recycled LDP. In this case, there was a presence of a paper. Obviously, to, to look at whether it was paper or other things, you need to look at um, some wavelength or more chemical related properties on the right-hand side. We obviously associated the, the, the wavelength and the molecular compounds available at that wavelength um, for cellulose to identify whether there was paper or timber. But we, I, I must say that only a relatively small amount of sources were found to contain traces of paper and timber. Now, this is probably um, a bit more interesting, and it's related to the fact that some of the recycled plastics are coming from all over the world. If you're thinking about post-consumers, um, food wrapping, etc., we actually import a lot of food from different parts of the world, whether it's uh, Latin America, um, Asia, Europe, United States, and each and every single country has a different regulation in terms of uh, banning specific toxic substances. So what we looked at was, is there any uh, BDE or flame retardants, let's put it in a simple way, um, into the recycled plastics? And for some of them, like the one in the picture, we actually found out that there is a significant amount of uh, this type of substances. Um, and that significant amount exceeded the uh, maximum thresholds. So probably by looking at these sort of things and, and um, putting a bit more attention in what we are recycling into roads, that's still in favor of fostering the entire market of the good plastics, of the, um, uh, the, the, the plastic that doesn't contain this sort of noxious substances. Um, what we found though, is that probably around the two or three different sources of plastics had a, a, quite a peak in terms of threshold, of, of exceeding the threshold associated with the maximum amount of flame retardants, which um, are banned, are currently banned in Australia. We cannot use it and we cannot reintroduce them uh, anymore when recycling plastics. So overall, we had these eight criteria and we wanted to um, create a sort of a ranking system for the different groups of plastics. If you remember those four groups of plastics, um, this is just an example for one single source of plastic. You can find all the ranking into the report. So. For instance, for this particular type, we got different scores from zero to 100. The way we uh, provided um, these uh, different properties with a specific score, it's detailed in report number two. I don't have the time to go each one, um, um, one by one and, and describe all the different uh, scores, but um, the, the information in the report is extensive. So for this particular type of plastic, as an example, you score 67 out of 100. Now, if you start plotting them into the initial graph, into the radar graph, then you'll start saying that, okay, virgin LDP has a specific score, virgin LDP has another specific score, and then you start adding recycled sources 
and recycle plastics from source A, from source B, um, D, I, so on and so forth. And you can see some of them as more or less organic contamination. Some of them is more pure than others. Some of them as a higher or lower solubility. And I keep going, can I can keep going and going. But uh, we did that for all the different types of plastics. Uh, interestingly, EVA, which is the polymer commonly used for asphalt application, is the one with the highest um, ranking, just as a proof that the, with the highest score, as a proof that the ranking was working properly in a way. Um, this is just the difference between the post-consumer here in gray and the post-industrial in orange. So the post-industrial has usually a higher purity, so it's less contaminated, um, but also has a less processability, for instance, just focusing on those two parameters. And the reason is that post-consumer is going through um, more recycling steps, uh, chain breakage, lower viscosity, and therefore higher processability compared to uh, the post-industrial. We also looked at the sensitivity analysis of these weights. Okay, scenario one was the one I just presented you where all the different parameters have the same weight. However, scenario two was given different weights and scenario three was given different weights as well to each and every single one of them. But you can see that at the bottom that the screening for the BFR was always the same and it was always given a high value because in, in, in agreement with the advisory board, we thought that safety must really be our number one priority in what we are reusing into roads. So if you look at the variability between the different scenarios with three different colors of the type of plastics, you can see that this is EVA on the left-hand side, and then the four groups that I told you before. And what is kind of uh, um, interesting to notice is the extreme variability of the um, Comingo post-consumer plastics compared to the others, which are mostly uh, post-industrial. So that's something that we need to take into account and probably look at uh, when probably looking at the specifications, for instance. The same has been done for the dry process. So I haven't presented all of it for the dry process, but pretty much the same stuff. So when you look at the dry process, we looked at different scenarios, different weights. And at the end, what we um, came up with was this um, screening strategy. And just to make sure, we did all these tests to make sure that the plastic companies um, can focus on some of the most important parameters for road-grade plastics rather than to test them all. Um, so we did hold the homework in advance so that people can uh, test precisely what is needed rather than um, look for a huge variety of different properties. Um, so the idea was to really simplify, but also at the same time to consider the needs of road state authorities, because at the end of the day, they are, they are the final users of the technology. They are the ones implementing it into roads. Um, similar specifications exist for other types of recycled materials, crumb rubber, glass. Um, they need to be free uh, from impurities. They need to be free from contaminants, etc. So there, there are no reason really for, for this plastic to be really any different from other specifications in, in other recycled materials. Um, more information on what indicators should be considered to check for the plastic uh, properties will be included in report number three. As I said, that will be submitted by us to Osreds next week, but you will probably see it early next year. Um, in the second webinar on Thursday, this is what you're gonna look at. Uh, a bit of a testing framework for the performance assessment of plastic modified bitumen and asphalt. 
but also um, two very novel parts about fuming and emissions. So how we measure it and microplastics. And this is quite novel and includes a methodology um, that we have developed specifically um, for this microplastic assessment. More specific information can be found at this report here. Uh, this was published in November and it's available for download. So just last acknowledgement, um, I'm, I'm mostly a presenter and I'm just as good as my team members are. So the, 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 the people in my team that have participated to this project specifically are Dai, Yongja, Rebecca, Marie, Hassan and Michael. And two of them are actually here today to help me out with the Q&A. Thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Filippo. Um, and uh, I, I'm inviting Marie and Yonja to join us for the Q&A and uh, Andrew as well to moderate it. Thanks so much. Um, I'm just going to pull the slides back to myself. Uh, and Andrew, anytime you need me to jump to any particular slide, I'm here and I'm going to. Right. Well, if you can go to slides 17 and 18, Katarina, that'd be good. So, Filippo, um, noting that you did this survey, you know, um, almost a year ago, uh, the question relates to the supply side. Do you see a step change um, in in this process? If demand increases, do you see the process of, uh, as presented would change significantly? Um, and do you, do you think the industry would react to that demand? Um. So the question is, if I see any change in this recycling processes here, if we create some sort of demand for recycled plastics in roads? That's correct. Okay. Well, yes, I think definitely yes. Um, most of the focus and attention, sorry, if we can go back to the previous slide. Yeah, most of the focus and attention will probably um, be associated with the first two the collections and the sorting. What we have found is that depending on the type of scheme that is being adopted by a specific state or territories, the quality of what we call post-consumer commingled plastic can be very different. So we found a very, very nice and good source of commingled plastics coming from South Australia. And we found very bad sources coming from other places. So if we implement, let's say a specific scheme for road grade plastics, which, as I said, it's not just one type of plastic, it can be many types of plastics as long as we test it and we understand what it is. Um, the collection must be targeted and also the sorting can be streamlined for accessing that particular final properties that we would like to achieve. So I consider if we create a market for it, then collection and sorting can be slightly differentiated specifically for this application. And and the effect on price would you would you say that price would go up if you um, if you improve sorting and quality of product it does that would that affect um, price of the product? So right now the plastics that we've been playing with are mostly either landfill for what relates to commingled plastic so they come with a negative price and. If we start saying, okay, rather than landfilling it, you can improve your collection scheme and sorting and bring it back to a useful product. Obviously the price will be higher, but we are still comparing with something uh, like polymers for roads that are priced at three, four, five times the price of a ton of recycled plastics. 
So even if it becomes $1.5 per kilo, we are still like 30%, we are still paying 30% of what is this, or, or even less than that of what it is the, the standard price for a polymer. So it could make sense. Obviously different realities, different companies, different investments in terms of machineries they have or they don't have. So that, that all needs to be taken into account you know, in a business case study, I think. Okay. But the technology uh, is there. Yep. So, Filippo, with your um, testing, the, the your testing involved involving the thermochemical mechanical properties, did you wash the plastic specimens? Um, the, plastic, the plastic specimen was tested as it came from the um, supplier. Uh, however, most of them, they actually washed it beforehand. So we know which one was washed, we know which one was unwashed. And, and but presumably, we tested as it came. Yep, and presumably you would expect, if, if those plastics were ever used in a national process, that they would be appropriately washed before use. So any contaminates would be majority, would be removed. Yeah, that, that's definitely right. And what I can add on to this is just that washing doesn't eliminate all the chemicals. Washing is usually done just uh, with water or some simple uh, rinsing facility. So we may need to tackle the problem in advance by looking at what type of plastics we are collecting and how to sort them out. Okay, the, the next question. Um, will the project um, identify how much and inert and dangerous contaminants are acceptable? In terms of the plastic itself? In, in terms, terms of, of use of recycled. In terms of use of recycled plastic, is there an acceptable level of, of dangerous contaminants? Um, well, it's not that the project will do that. There is already a standard telling you that there is a maximum concentration for um, BDE or, or flame retardants, for instance, which I think it's 500 parts per million, Marie, if I'm correct. Yes, I'm correct. 500 parts per million? Yes, yep. Okay, and in, in the, the report number, yeah, in report number two, you will find um, all the 31 types of plastics and how they behave against this threshold. And I think there is one or two that are above the threshold coming from post-consumer operations, but the majority of them are quite low. So it, again, it's all about collection, understanding where it comes from, how to sort it out. Okay, if we go to slide 40, Okay, what are the most polluted plastics in terms of BFR? Um, does, does that aspect simply ban some imported sources from recycling? Sorry, Andrew, can you repeat the second part of the question? Yep, so what, so what are the most polluted plastics in terms of BFR? Does that mm -hmm. aspect simply ban some important, important sources from recycling or imported, mm -hmm. I suppose? Yeah, okay, so I think it's not a problem with a specific polymer. So it's not that all the PET has a, has a potential for flame retardants or is it, the, it is the polyethylene to have potential with flame retardants instead. So we are not saying um, PE is good, PET is not good or PP is not good because they can absorb this type of flame retardant. This is most related to the product they are coming from. 
some of the countries around the world, they do not have a specific ban in place because they did not engage with that Stockholm Convention that was released um, probably a decade ago that, that has been updated for many countries to take up. And Australia is one of them. So in Australia, there is a, a ban on those type of plastics. Now, whether we are importing plastics from countries that they do not have um, such a, an agreement in place with the rest of the world, that, that can be um, problematic. Marie, would you like to add something else? Yeah, no, actually here, the presence of BFR would depend on the manufacturing of the plastic, its use, its aging, its recycling process, because the BFRs are very easy to spread, specifically when you recycle uh, commingled plastics. So even if it's not present in initially in LDP, for instance, if LDP is blended with polypropylene uh, during the recycling process, then the BFR can spread and reach the LDP. So you're right, Filippo, when you say that there's no typical type of plastic that we should ban. We have to test each and every recycled plastic that arrives in order to be sure if there is um, a concentration of BFR above this 500 ppm threshold. And this is commonly done for other materials as well. So in the specifications, when we ask for using glass, recycled glass as sand, we, we specifically ask to be free of contaminants. So as I said, there shouldn't be any different reason for the plastic to be considered as a different material. Okay. How does the plastics perform under long-term UV exposure? We haven't tested it yet. Easy, easy answer. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, we, 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 we know that, um, yeah, uh, we know that it could be um, an issue because some of the plastics are, are um, commonly prone to UV damage. Um, it wasn't really included into the initial scope of the project. We will probably include it anyway for what relates to the microplastics release. So we have uh, a few machines at our MIT that are capable of doing um, UV aging. So we will probably UV age the material, the asphalt materials, and, and then test for microplastics before and after aging. Uh, one other thing I can say is that usually recycled plastics already has UV aging inside, anti-UV aging inside the plastic itself. So that could be beneficial because, um, for instance, if you take it from outside benches or, or any plastic that comes for, for, from uh, products that are suitable for application in the outdoor, they have been already treated with UV, anti-UV aging additives. Okay. Yeah, I know we're over time, but we've just got a few more questions. Although yep. there's a lot here, but I'll just pick out a few. So um, what's the situation in Europe, US and Asia in regards to development of recycled plastics for the road industry? Okay, so um, I'll start with um, USA because I'm most familiar with what they're doing. There are a few similar projects that have started um, at the same time or after ours project. Um, there is one from NCAT that has been looking at just a single source of polyethylene low density and a few compatibilizers, testing in bitumen and asphalt, uh, but nothing was related to the plastic itself. So we're just, uh, again, supplying plastics from one source, putting into bitumen and asphalt and, and see the results. I know that they are moving forward and, and um, in an effort to deepen this analysis 
to, to find out more parameters, more values out of it. Um, there are several DOTs in the United States that are looking at this technology, um, implementing field trials. So there is one that has been done in Virginia, um, Virginia DOT, which I've been talking to um, three or four weeks ago. They reached out because they wanted to have an understanding of what we were doing. And believe it or not, Australia is quite advanced compared to the rest of the world in for what relates to this particular project. Um, I know of several projects in Europe now, mostly disconnected one from the other. So Europe, again, it's an assembly of many, many different countries, each one with a, a specific government. So um, you, you span all the way from we just started mixing it with bitumen to um, implementation in the field without really passing through the asphalt and bitumen testing. What I can say is that whenever we present this um, sort of presentation about the plastic itself, um, we get a lot of questions from the asphalt people that have already started doing something in this space saying, oh, I didn't know that I needed to test this, or I didn't know that something bad could come up from my recycled plastics, or I didn't know that uh, the declared composition, what was given to me, was in reality totally different from the actual composition. I was expecting to test LDPE because the company told me it was LDPE, but in reality, it, it's a combination of two or three types of plastics at different contents. So I think this is um, quite a very interesting piece of work. But as I said, we have been done all the homework so that we can focus and the company should focus on just some simple tests and processes to, to sell more. Next question. So in regards to some of the recycled plastic that's currently being used in Asheville applications, is testing for contamination undertaken by the supplier or the receiver or some other third party? So my main idea around it is that all the plastic testing must be done by the supplier of plastic itself. So the contractor should be able to buy with confidence as it buys crumb rubber or as it buys uh, recycled glass uh, or aggregates from the quarry or bitumen from the supplier of bitumen. It, it, it needs to be in a position to buy with confidence. So uh, with a sort of a certificate saying, yes, my plastic is road grade. I know the rules. I've tested these parameters that are in, in the project, not all of them, as I said before. Uh, I, I, I keep a quality assurance and quality control process in my company. So I keep doing it every month. You can be reassured that this is a good road grade plastic source. Feel free to use it. That, that's my thinking. That, so that's, that's the, you know, I suppose, the, your proposed ways forward. In terms of your discussions with, with suppliers of rec, um, recycled plastic today, do they undertake testing for contamination? Um, some of them do, the majority of them does not. Okay. It's a big business and it's growing up very quickly. Um, so a lot of rules are still kind of blurry. That's my understanding of it. Yep. Um, in terms of the, what testing do you propose to undertake to assess the long-term performance of Asheville containing recycled plastic? Mm-hmm. So that will be assessed into the report number three that will we submit next week. Yep, so um, the, the typical test that you undertake on asphalt, modulus fatigue, wheel rutting, etc. 
is mm -hmm. what you'll be undertaking on asphalt containing recycled plastic. Yeah, pretty much the same test as for a standard asphalt. As I said, for um, microparticles, there is a specific procedure that will be presented on Thursday. And for that, we can look at the aging long-term of the asphalt and run the test before and after. But also we are looking at the future recyclability of plastic modified asphalt according to the three different methods. So we have developed uh, a methodology to age, simulating long-term field aging in the lab. So we basically fabricate our own plastic wrap with a, with a specific and robust methodology. And we use that plastic wrap into new mixes to verify whether the properties will stay consistent over time. So that's how we managed to look at the long-term aging of the asphalt containing plastics. Okay, well, I think I'll draw to a close here with the questions, noting that uh, quite a number of questions relate to the environment and microplastics and fuming emissions. So Marie and Youngjai, that's your area of expertise. That will be Thursday's webinar. So we look forward to that. Uh, just a reminder to the audience that there will be a third report, as Philip has indicated, which should be available in, in February, um, that will detail the results of an extensive testing program. Thank you, Philip team. And Katarina, back to you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Um, thanks, Andrew. Um, and just a few quick words um, about our next uh, webinars. So, as um, Andrew uh, said, uh, we have one more session to run before the end of this year, and it's the second part of today's webinar. Uh, so Andrew, Filippo, Marie, and Yonja will uh, provide an overview of the outcomes of testing to assess emissions and microplastic release associated with the manufacture, placement, and um, use of asphalt containing recycled plastics. We have already started scheduling sessions for the new year and the first one uh, will be about the proposed updates to the guide to road design. So uh, please visit our website for more information and to register. And more webinars are coming up in 2022. So please keep an eye on our website uh, or subscribe to our newsletter to receive um, alerts. Uh, and as usual, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes um, to send us your feedback. It really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and uh, what suggestions you have for our future webinars. Uh, once again, today's session is being recorded and we will send you the link to the recording uh, when it's published on our website. And we also have quite a few questions left and we will uh, respond to all of them in writing um, and we'll send you the copy of the response after the session. So thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe, and we will see you on Thursday. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks.